We're in the middle of our summer series on the book of, uh, in the book of Proverbs, and we're talking about this summer, what does it mean for us to be people that would become wise? Again, a word maybe that we don't often think of or think of necessarily in relation to ourselves, but it's a, but it's a word that Proverbs offers, us to, offers to us as a description of what it means um, to really follow Jesus, what it means to be authentically human. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 533. So as we get ready to read this text together and talk about it, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, you, uh, you tell us that you offer us wisdom, and that you teach us what it means to become wise. And we pray that for ourselves today. That you use even our time right now in the book of Proverbs to make us wiser. That we might learn what it means to live in this world in a way that honors you and is truly human. We need help with this. We pray that you would show it to us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beasts, she has mixed her wine, and she's also set her table. She's sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of shale. Okay, if you're like me, the first time you read this text, you think, what in the world? You know, here's this picture of of wisdom and of folly and of these houses being built. What's going on and, you know, what possible uh, connection does this have with our lives? Well, I think we're going to see that it does this morning. Um, We've seen in the last couple weeks as as we've been looking at the book of Proverbs, um, that it is an invitation to become people who are wise. And if you know anything about the book of Proverbs, if you've read through here or as you continue to this summer, you'll see that the first nine chapters um, are different than the rest of the book. They're these, it's a series of um, addresses from the son to his father about what it means to become wise. And he talks about things to avoid and things to embrace. And these calls to the, the son to become wise um, reach their peak right here at the end of chapter 9. Now, starting in chapter 10, you'll recognize what we think of when we think of Proverbs, kind of short, pithy statements uh, that that give you little snapshots of life. All that starts in chapter 10. 
But chapter, the first nine chapters are building us up to prepare to be able to hear those. So we've got um, this invitation to wisdom being dr- brought to a, a dramatic height in chapter nine. Okay, it's being it, it's it's out on the table and it is um, in all its um, imagery. It, it it comes to a heightened point here. Wisdom and, and folly in this passage, they're portrayed as these two women. Okay, Now, both of these women, they're doing three things. Both are calling to us. Both of them have prepared a meal for us. And both of them actually promise us life. Uh, and the book of Proverbs tells us that the choice we make here, the woman that we embrace, the way that we follow, is going to set the course of our entire lives. In fact, the meal that you choose, the book of Proverbs says, has the power to make or break your entire life. So it's relevant. These two calls coming out to us. So let's, let's take a look at um, a little more closely at, at these two women who are calling to us. First, both are calling to us. Now, let me say something about the imagery here, because for some of you, this might sort of naturally trip you up. Um, it's using this metaphor of, of two women, and, and that's unexpected. Maybe that might even be offensive to you. Why, you know, why, why do we have to pick on women? You know, if, if you've been reading the first nine chapters of Proverbs, you'd see that something about the rhetorical situation of this book. Okay, here's, here's the rhetorical scene. It is uh, addressed as a father, and in, in places you see both parents, uh, giving this instruction to their sons on the cusp of them stepping into their full life about what it means to become wise, about what it means to live skillfully, and warnings against living life foolishly. Okay, so it's pitched in a certain way. But I think it's accessible for all of us. We saw in the first chapter that the call goes out to those who are simple and those who are gullible and those who are wise. And if you think about it, any, any book of Scripture that you read was written to someone other than you. Initially, and we step into their shoes in order to read it for ourselves. I mean, for example, the book of Genesis was written um, largely by Moses to the Exodus generation coming out of Egypt, out of slavery, telling them who their God was and what he was doing in the world. But we read Genesis and find God's word to us in that as well. But it was written first to them. We spent, um, you know, a number of months ago, we spent a long time going through the book of Ephesians, written to the, you know, to the church in Ephesus in the first century. That was the original audience, but we step into that and we see that God speaks to us as well. So in Proverbs, we step into the role of the son being instructed. And we see that as we do, um, that there are, as, as he says here, there are two women, two ways of life that are calling to us. Look first at woman wisdom, this verses, um, especially verses 3 and 4. They are both calling to us. Verse 3, she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come and eat my food. She sent out these young women, these messengers, to go into the town and to call people to come to her. But notice where she is. Okay, it says she's at the highest places in the town. Why would you stand at the highest places in the town? You can, you can be heard. From there, But even more, in the, in the ancient Near East, the highest places of the town were the place in the town where most, office, most often the place of worship was, where the local temple was, where the places where sacrifices were offered. She is calling from the place where people come to connect with what is most ultimate in the world. She's calling from the place where, where God or the gods or a god in a particular town was worshipped. In other words, she's making this fundamental, ultimate claim 
this divine calling. And she says, come, everybody who will listen. If you're simple, turn in here. If you lack sense, come eat the meal that I've prepared for you. Now, if you go down to the last part of the chapter, you see woman folly and the contrast there. But she's also issuing this call to us. Verses 13 through 16. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their ways. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. She doesn't have any maidservants. Instead, you get this... um, this, this very reduced picture of, of woman folly. She simply sits in her doorway and she calls out, also from the highest points of the city. She calls to everybody who's passing by, the same group, the simple, those who lack sense. And the way the book of Proverbs present the, presents this, it presents it to us as listeners. And that means that we are all listening to one of those two calls at every point in our life. These are the only two ultimate voices for us. Okay, now here's the thing. It doesn't feel like that. Right? You, you read this and you, and you think, I don't, I don't typically think of my life of, of, of hearing this woman wisdom calling to me or folly calling to me, foolishness calling to me, bidding me to come and join her. That's not the way we tend to think of our lives. We don't necessarily feel it that way. What does it feel like? Well, it feels like we're just trying to kind of get through life as best we can. We're faced with confusing decisions all the time, situations we don't feel prepared for, things that come up with your children, things that come up at work, things that come up in your relationships with your friends. And you feel like, nobody really prepared me for this. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to do next. I, I can't find the manual where the answer to this one is written down. We feel like, and we are these people, walking through our life, making these decisions. And you don't feel most often like you're hearing these clear voices of wisdom and folly. This goes for all the big decisions and all the small decisions. Some of those decisions really feel weighty for us. Um, Am I going to go to college? Where? What am I going to major in? What career am I going to pursue? What kind of person am I going to be? Should I get married? Should I marry this person? Are we going to have children? How many? Am I going to stay married? Where am I going to live? How am I going to care for my aging parents? When and where am I going to retire? The answer, of course, is Williamsburg. (laughs) And at the same time, we have all these decisions in our life that don't particularly feel weighty. You know, what am I going to do for fun this weekend? Uh, What am I going to have to do this week to seal the deal with this particular client? How am I going to navigate my challenges at home this week? but this, this passage, I think, it invites us to see our lives differently. It invites us to see all the disparate parts of our lives, um, all the different aspects of our life in, in a more unified way. And let me give you an example from the world of art history. Those of you who are art history buffs. Uh, pointillism was a movement in French art in the 1880s. George Seurat is one of the most uh, famous uh, pointillist artist. You might have seen this uh, this painting, his most famous painting. It's called Sunday Afternoon on the Island of Le Grand Jatte. Okay, It takes place on the banks of the Seine in France. If you've ever seen this scene, it's, it's, it's got all these what look like picnickers. There are these people on the banks of the river, and um, they're, they're dressed in sort of 1880s relaxed style, which means they have very formal dresses on and little you know sun umbrellas and look incredibly uncomfortable, more dressed up than we are when we come to church. This is how they're recreating but you see, you notice the color, and, and it, it, there's a sort of soft focus in the painting. 
and it's, it's just striking if you've ever seen it. Uh, but one of the, the most striking things you notice if you see this in person when, when you walk up close to the painting and where you expect to see brush strokes, you know what it looks like to look at a painting up close. Instead of brush strokes, you see these very tiny dots of color, thousands of them. Okay, this painting is six feet tall by ten feet wide. Thousands of these points of color. And George Surratt spent two years painting this painting. And instead of brush strokes, what did he do? He took zillions of little dots, dots of color. When you get close, you, all you see are this hazy you know, assortment of, of dots. But what happens when you stand back? It comes into focus is this, is this beautiful painting. And I think that's a little bit of an illustration of what the way we tend to look at the disparate parts of our lives in a reverse way. We tend to see only the dots, only the points. We're standing this close to the painting, and nothing feels connected. Here I am trying to struggle my way through work. Here I am trying to figure out how to take care of my family. Here I am trying to just make it work in all the areas of my life. And we feel like we're jumping from area to area, and all we see are the dots. The book of Proverbs says if you take a few steps back, then you begin to see a pattern emerge, a picture emerge. And all these dots, all these disparate parts of our life actually add up to something. And they add up to something coherent. When you step back from these, all these little decisions, all these little points of our life, what is it that we begin to see? What's the picture that we begin to see? Well, the book of Proverbs says, as you stand back, you will see a portrait. And it's one of two portraits. As you step back, you begin to see the, the, the figure emerge of Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly. That the points of our lives add up to one of those two things. Both these women are calling to us. Second thing, both these women have prepared a meal for us. Look at Wisdom's meal. <clears throat> you find this in the first few verses. It starts with this picture of Wisdom's house. It says that she's this diligent woman who's prepared this house. And that, it is, uh, that she's built her home and it has seven pillars Okay, seven pillars. Likely what that means for the original readers here is it's a symbol of perfection. That it's a spacious home. That it's well proportioned. That it's an appropriate place to, to invite guests to come and receive your hospitality. A grand ball, uh, banquet hall. And the second thing is in this grand hall she has prepared a banquet for us. Verse 2. She's slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. She's set her table. Now, when we have a steak dinner, we don't tend to think of it as we've slaughtered our beasts. Uh, But that's what she's talking about. What is she doing? She's prepared a great feast here. Mixed wine, um, wine that was mixed with um, these aromatic spices that would have enhanced the flavor of it. This um, This was a feast of the greatest proportion. For us, we're used to eating meat often, many of us. In ancient Near East, it was a luxury. You didn't have that at every meal few weeks into my marriage, for the first time I discovered that you could eat a dinner that didn't involve meat in it. That was news to me. <laughs> but here we have this meal that's fit for a king. Um, Elizabeth and I, our first set of friends uh, after college who got married about a year, six months or a year out after we finished college, um, got married in Baltimore. So this is the first big wedding that we and our friends went to. And the wedding took place uh, at the George Peabody Music Library that's a part of 
uh, Johns Hopkins University. It's been in movies. Imagine the most incredible place you could possibly have a wedding. You walk in and there's this huge, this huge open floor that goes up to the ceiling six stories above. And there are columned um, uh, aisles on either side that go all the way up where all the books are held. Beautiful marble floor, unbelievable lighting, huge chandeliers. If you could picture a place to be married, this is it. And this is where our friends were married. And for dinner, you know, 200 of their closest friends. And <clears throat> this elaborate meal of, of steak and shrimp and the best wine and dancing. It was, an un, it was an unbelievable evening. Liz and I still scratch our heads and think we, we had no idea what we were seeing when we did. If only we could go back to that one night and enjoy that meal again. That is what wisdom is preparing for us. This grand feast in this grand hall. That's the picture of wisdom inviting us in, and that is the meal that she offers to us. Okay, now you take that picture and contrast it with the other meal in this chapter, down towards the end, verses 14 on through 17, Folly's Meal. Notice how unelaborated this is. She's she's simply serving this in her house. No effort involved, no seven pillars, no perfection, no grandeur, and no real banquet. Verse 17, what does she offer? No meat, no gourmet meal, no grand and sparkling celebration, only ultimately bread and water. That's what folly is offering. Now, we read this and we think, that doesn't sound like much of a choice. You know, I mean, who would choose that? Who are those poor, sorry people that are going about life choosing bread and water because they don't know any better? Because we would think we would never choose that. I mean, you can see clearly if you're going to choose between these two meals, let's go for the one in the Peabody Library. But here's the thing. We're seeing this picture in the broad light of day. This is the morning after take on what's happening at these two feasts. You know what it's like to be in those situations of your life. Some of them you remember the morning. You're in the morning after and you remember the night before. And you remember the elegance and the grandeur and the beauty of something. Sometimes you're in the morning after and you realize the thing you're pursuing was all a sham. And it seemed so clear to you then, but it didn't at the time. This is the morning after view. But what does folly look like in the moment? Verse 13, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive. She knows nothing. This word ESV version in our Pew Bibles translates it seductive. You might find it uh, translated in whatever version you're reading as maybe undisciplined or something else. There's a variety of ways this word can be translated. But the, the way it's translated in ESV, seduction, brings out this connection that runs through the first nine chapters of Proverbs of woman folly being like this, in the first nine chapters, adulterous woman who seduces, who brings someone off their path and heads them ultimately for destruction. And it's telling us that folly, foolishness, is seductive. Listen to the meal she offers, verse 17. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now, here's the thing about Folly's offer. It is true. She's telling us something true. Stolen water is sweet at times, isn't it? Doesn't it taste that way sometimes? Bread eaten in secret, stolen bread, forbidden bread, is and can be pleasant, at least for a season. It wouldn't entice us if it didn't. Now, in contrast to this great feast, and the Peabody Library, um, one of the things I introduced my, my wife to when we got married was how to actually, um, how to actually have a road trip. 
Okay? Now, we uh, have always lived away from family, so it's always involved long hours of driving to go visit our family. And it took a while, Elizabeth a while to realize that this was, this was actually a ritual for me, that, which I've largely broken myself of now. But trips, uh, long trips always involved at least one stop at McDonald's. And here's the thing about McDonald's. I don't know what that is that they put in their fries, this highly addictive controlled substance. <laughs> but there's, there's something about it. You go eat someplace at McDonald's, and it tastes so good going down. And about an hour down the road, you feel so bad. So I would usually follow that up with our next stop at the gas station of buying a candy bar and a Coke. <laughs> because there was something about the experience of a road trip that I just felt like at the end you just had to feel bad. <laughs> but it felt so good in the moment, you know. This um, pseudo-feast that's offered to us on the road. Well, forbidden, forbidden bread and stolen water. Okay, this is just another way of saying that sin is seductive and alluring and so often sweet in the moment. And you know this is true. You might have discovered this in, some, in the very literal level that's described here. An affair, a one-night stand, a moment of indiscretion, promised to be sweet, and it might really have been in the moment. But you see, this is always what's at work in every moment when we choose what is foolish Every moment when we are tempted, every time we sin, every time we go against the moral fabric of God's universe, this is what we're participating in. Let me just give you one example. Think about the last time, and this will hit some of you differently than others, but think about the last time you were really angry. Okay, the last time, maybe it was this week, time you gave in to anger, when you vented it with your thoughts or your words or maybe your actions. Maybe the cause of your anger was a legitimate wrong. Or maybe it was just a perceived wrong. But either way, you were hurt or you were threatened, or you were inconvenienced, and you let somebody else have it. Maybe it was your coworker. Maybe it was your next door neighbor. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was your children. Maybe it was God. You let them have it. For you, that might be a verbal outburst or even a physical outburst. Or maybe your personality is a little more uh, refined and clever and restrained in that. Uh, and for you, retaliation is, is the well-placed cold shoulder or the social snub or the snide remark or the icy withholding of affection. Whatever your style, all of these responses are anger indulged. What's happening at that moment? Everything seems so clear. The wrong is so blatant. The sword of judgment is hanging right there in front of you for you to grasp and take a swipe. And you pick it up and swing. What happens later, maybe moments later, maybe hours later, when you've cooled off and the outburst is over, when the lights come on, when you've deepened a relational chasm with your spouse or your child or your friend, you look at the thing that made you angry and it just doesn't seem quite as flagrant or justified or threatening in the cold light of day. You look at yourself and you realize that though the moment of anger promised to make you feel better, to justify you, to give you the satisfaction of getting even, it's left you hollow and empty instead. You see, it promised you this banquet and it gave you only scraps, stolen water, bread eaten in secret. It promised so much, and yet it somehow delivered so little. And woman folly stands in the background, 
and she smiles. Because you see, woman folly never looks like woman folly in the moment unless you follow the call of Proverbs and become wise. You never recognize woman folly for who she is unless you embrace woman wisdom and begin to see life from her perspective. So they both offer us this banquet. They also um, both prepared this meal for us. They both also promise us life. Back to folly. In that moment of anger and that moment of indiscretion, in a lifetime of poor decisions about spending money, spending our affections, our time, our worship, our friendships, our families, each one of these missteps, each one of these foolish decisions, each step towards folly rather than wisdom, in each one, we think we're grasping life and satisfaction and things are going to fill us up. But what comes of folly? What does she promise but not deliver? Look at verse 18. He, the person listening to folly, does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of shale, in the depths of the grave. See, she promises life, but she delivers death. Every time we follow folly, <clears throat> every little point of color in our lives, the reflector and gives us a little taste of this death, a little taste of the full flowering of her hold on our lives, a hold that leads only to death, real and final, because for both folly and wisdom, their call is ultimate and, fi- and final. Look in verse 12. <clears throat> if you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, if you are foolish, if you follow folly, you alone will bear it. It's the promise of folly. Look, about, look at what about wisdom? Look at the promise of wisdom. Verses 5 and 6. Come and eat of the bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. What's she saying? Wisdom is calling out to us and she's promising us life. Full life. Real life unbreakable, unending life. Life that doesn't lead us into the grave with woman folly and everyone who eats from her table. So here's another question for us. Is it true? Is it true that embracing woman wisdom gives us life? And if so, how do we find that? How do we take this meal? How do we follow her? How do we enter her house and join her feast? Remember what we said about where folly and wisdom have built their houses? At the highest point of the city. At the point of worship. The place of worship. The place of ultimate commitment. The place of our ultimate motivation. The thing that we hold at the center of our lives. Folly and wisdom vie for that place. For that position. Who is wisdom here in this passage? Who is it that invites us to come and eat and live? Who is it that sits at the highest point of the city and calls to us It is God himself, the God of wisdom, the one who gives wisdom, the one who offers life. He's the one who invites us in that we might eat and we might be filled and we might be satisfied. And here's the thing that we find as we come to the New Testament. We see that wisdom has another name and another face, and that is the face and the name of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says about wisdom and about becoming wise. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 30. Listen to how he addresses these followers of Jesus. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And listen to what he says about Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. He says, Jesus himself has become our wisdom, our redemption, our sanctification. Part of what it means that Jesus himself has become our salvation is that he takes the place of wisdom in our life. What he's saying is that we have a wisdom problem. We are not wise enough. And the problem is that we can't really become wise enough. We can read about woman folly and woman wisdom every day of our lives. You could start your morning reading this passage every day. And at some point in that day, find that you've been listening to woman folly again. It is not just an intellectual problem, but we have a heart problem. Here's the remarkable thing. Wisdom not only calls to us from the highest places in the town, from the place of worship, in fact, from heaven itself. Wisdom comes down into the city, in the person of Jesus. He not only invites us into his house and his feast, he comes to get us. And he not only warns us of the death that folly brings us, he takes them on himself. The wise one taking on the punishment of the foolish. Lady Wisdom not offering herself, not, not only offering herself to those who would follow her, not just Lady Wisdom, but Lord Wisdom, giving himself for us that we would have life that we don't deserve, but so desperately need. Giving himself in order to transform us, to give us life. To take all the thousands of scattered points of, our, of color in our lives and rearranging them. So that more and more as our lives are seen from a distance, they too reveal a portrait. But it's a new portrait. And it's no longer the portrait of woman folly, but it's the picture, the portrait of Jesus himself. As he repoints us, repaints us, remakes us in his image for his glory. This call of wisdom here is the call of Jesus himself, that we would come to him because he has come to us. Let's pray. Father, we are, at so many points, foolish people. And you offer us wisdom, and you offer us Jesus. And we pray that more and more this would be a reality in our life. Even if we are people who have been following Jesus our whole lives, so much work to be done. We pray that you would continue your good work of repointing the painting, of pulling these pieces together of helping us to actually reflect what you have made us to be in Jesus. Holy, accepted in your sight, children now rather than those on the outside. You have brought us in and now you're making us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray that you would continue that good work. Even this week, even this week, point out the folly in our lives and draw us into wisdom as we rest in Jesus more and more. And may our lives now reflect real wisdom as we follow Jesus who is wisdom. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.